0: Matthew chapter 7. If you are interested in keeping pace with the the verses we're going to be looking at today, those are on your worship guide. They are in more or less order. I'm pretty sure that's the order that we will hit them in. So we're going to start out by looking at verses 1 and 2 this morning. And like I said, there are going to be more to it than that. So just be prepared to to run with me for a little bit. Uh, But before we get into it, I want to open up with a word of prayer. So let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word we're grateful for the clarity that it gives and that it brings and I pray that as we go through these misconceptions about the Christian faith that you would uh, make truth clear that you would make it clear that we would see it well and that we would uh, change our lives to fit with what we see in your word when I ask this in your son's most precious name amen all right so if you weren't with us last week we're taking a break from our regular process of going through books of the Bible. So, for the next nine weeks, we're going to engage in a series that I've simply called Misconceptions About Christianity. All right, this is a series that I've wanted to, to do for a long time due to the regularity with which I hear these misconceptions about the, the Christian faith. And since we usually take a break over the summer to study the Psalms, I thought this would be a perfect time to address ideas. Uh, that are wrong about Christianity or uh, maybe they're right but yet they've been taken out of the proper context that happens all the time and last week we started off with one concept that's just simply completely wrong and that's the idea that God will never give you more than you can handle I think the Bible clearly teaches that the that we will be given more than we can handle on a regular basis and because of that it teaches us to be dependent on God So this idea, which is so uh, rampantly and willingly shared, both inside the church and out, it's absolutely false. It is completely uh, incorrect. Uh, God will certainly give you more than you can handle, and, and many times he's going to delight in doing so because that's going to push you into a deeper relationship with him than you had at the beginning of it. So as he brings you through this, as he's walking with you side by side, you're going to lean into that because you're going to come to the end of yourself very quickly. And so the Lord delights in that because you have pressed into him. Right? This week, we're not addressing an issue that is false, but rather one that is notoriously taken out of context. Right? It's th- this week is about a misconception that says that the Bible tells us that we're not supposed to judge people. And I'm sure that you have all, at one point or another, heard someone say this, or maybe at some point in your life you've even said this if someone has pointed out sin in your life, but the way this usually plays out is someone points out a sinful behavior in someone else and says that it's wrong for them to do that. And then that person looks at them and tells them that the Bible says that they're not supposed to judge others right, what you said, telling me that I'm wrong. That seems very judgmental. And the Bible is clear. You're not supposed to do that. Right? Have y'all ever heard someone say this before? Yes. Right. I think we all have. Now the question is, is it a true statement? Right? We're we're attributing this to the Bible. Let's find out if this is actually what the Bible says. Does the Bible tell us that we're not supposed to judge people? Well, let's look at Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2, and we'll find out if we are, in fact, actually supposed to judge people or not. Matthew 7, 1 and 2 says this, Do not judge, so you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. I mean, that's a fairly clear statement, right? Do not judge so that you won't be judged. These are the words of Christ, right? For those of you who have the type of Bible that would do that, that these would be words in red. These are somehow elevated above other words for some reason. But Jesus actually said this. He says, Do not judge others. So the next time you see or hear someone doing something that the Bible has condemned, you should just let it go, right? Because Jesus has clearly said that we're not to judge others. Is that what we're supposed to do? If you stop there in this passage, that's exactly what you're supposed to do, right? If you stop there. The problem with this view of what Christ has said is that the passage didn't stop there, right? Jesus continues on and he says this in verses 3 to 5. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. So if you take a step back and you look at the entirety of this passage, you're going to see that Jesus is not saying that we should not judge others. What he's saying is that we should not do so hypocritically, right? We should not be willing to call other people out for indulging in sinful activities or attitudes when we indulge in the same sinful attitudes or activities, Jesus says before you go calling out other people, you should make sure that you have taken care of that issue in your own life or else you will be judged by the same measure with which you have judged someone else. So once you've gotten that sin issue addressed in your own life, then you go and address it in the lives of those around you. It's not okay to condemn someone for sinning in public for what you sin doing in private. Right? Just because your heart issue has not been exposed to the world does not mean that it is okay for you to go on sinning that way and then call other people out for the same sin. And that's what Jesus is addressing here in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? The Bible only says that we are not to judge people if we cherry-pick what is useful to us in that moment. Right? In this passage, if we cherry-pick what's there and do not look at the rest of what Scripture says, we can say we're not supposed to judge people. And if we regularly approach the Bible this way, we can make the Bible say whatever we want. Right? Here are two of my personal favorites. I use this example all the time. One comes from half of a verse in Proverbs 28.1, which says, The wicked flee when no one is pursuing them. This is why I don't run. There's nobody chasing me, and, therefore, and I'm not wicked, so therefore I don't run because only wicked people run without being chased. So if you ever see anybody running out here on the street, those are wicked people. <laughs> right? And I promise you this, if you see me running, you better run too because something's coming because I don't run. <laughs> a second one I like to cherry pick to say whatever I want is in, found in Psalm 127.2. That verse says, in a very short part of it, in vain, you get up early. I don't like to get up early. So I try not to ever get up early. And guess what? That never works out for me. But there it is in Scripture. Like That's not all the verse says. But if I choose to parachute down into the middle of something in the Bible and I get to take out of it just whatever I like, then I can easily make the Bible say that. Right? The Bible clearly says that only wicked people run for fun and no one should get up early because it's pointless. Right? If I just go in there willy-nilly and pick whatever I like out of it, then I can make it say whatever I want. I mentioned these two things in jest, but this is literally how some people approach the Bible. Right? They only take from it what they like or what's useful at the moment, and they, then they leave the rest of it as though it doesn't matter. They take their cherry-picked verses. They use, some people use them like a sword. Right? I've got what I want to have happen in this, so I will take the Word of God and I will stab people with it and beat them over the head with it, and I will make them do what I want, or they will use it like a shield to defend themselves from other people coming at them the same way. They don't take into into consideration the context in which something's being said, and they don't take into account what the rest of the Bible has to say about their particular issue, and that is extremely dangerous. When we wield the Bible like a weapon to attack others, we are misusing God's word. And when we use it like a shield to protect ourselves from scrutiny, we may well be condemning ourselves without even knowing it. We must remember that the Bible is meant to both comfort us and confront us. Right? It's meant to confront us by calling us out on our sin, which, as I have said before, is anything that goes against the nature and character of God. And it's meant to comfort us by acknowledging that Jesus came to save us from our sin because we cannot save ourselves. This is both and. So with this in mind, I want us to look at some other passages, right? So that we don't narrow our view down to something and and make the Bible say what we want it to say. I want to look at some other passages that will hopefully clear up any confusion on whether or not we should call someone out on their sin. The first place I want to turn to is 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 to 17. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the word of God is where everything in the church begins. Through the scriptures, God reveals himself to us. And in the pages of that book, we learn that there are moral standards that God has set for for us that stem out of his nature and his character. Anything that goes against that is called sin. And foundationally, sin is a term that was used in archery when someone had missed the mark that they were shooting out shooting at someone would call sin because they missed the mark and we find written throughout the Bible that God's target for us is complete and utter perfection no sin not even one one place we're told this is 1st Peter 1 15 and 16 where Peter says as the one who called you is holy you also are to be holy in all of your conduct for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Right? So we sin and we put ourselves at, odd, at odds with our creator. Sin earns us separation from God. Sin earns us death and condemnation. That's both physical death and spiritual death. And this becomes problematic because we can't do anything about it. We cannot be good enough to earn back our salvation because God isn't looking for good enough. This isn't one of those situations where you can walk into your house with a 97 on your test and your parents are going to be proud of you because you almost got 100. Almost is not good enough in this situation. 100% is all that is acceptable. And we fall short of that on a daily basis. This was the reason why it was necessary for Jesus to step out of glory and become like us. Can you imagine the creator of the universe stepping out of a place where he is honored and worshipped and glorified and then to step into creation where he will eventually be spit upon and hit and have his beard plucked out and eventually crucified. Our sin is so severe that it required the Son of God to step into his creation to take on our flesh so that he could live the life that we should have lived. And then he goes to the cross and he dies the death that we deserve. And on the cross, God pours out all of his wrath, all of the condemnation that is that we deserve it all goes on to christ until he drank the cup of wrath dry and then jesus says it is finished the work is done it is complete and we see that it was sufficient because three days later he doesn't stay in the grave he rises again showing that he has conquered sin and he has conquered death and if he didn't do this then we would have no hope of reconciliation with god right because he did this We can repent of our sin. We can accept the perfect gift of righteousness that Christ has offered to us. And when this happens, the Apostle Paul says that we become a new creation. We become a a new creation with a new heart and a new spirit dwelling within us. And this new heart and this new spirit is going to desire to be more and more like Jesus But unfortunately, we still struggle with a sin nature. Anybody had any perfect days since you professed faith in Christ? If you say yes, you're a liar and lying is a sin. So there you go. Sin is deceitful. And it is something that we struggle with all of our life. And it likes to sneak up on us. It likes to attack from the darkness, from the blind side. And before we know it, even though we have struggle to root this sin out of our life we're going to find ourselves falling back into this pattern of going against God's nature and character and we do it again and we do it again and we do it again and so one of the purposes that that God has given us the church is to help us watch out for those blind spots right I'll watch your back if you watch mine right help help me See where I'm falling into sin, and I promise to help you see where you're falling into sin. And this is a very loving thing that we can do for one another, but it means that we have to be known. We have to let people in to show them our vulnerabilities, let them see our weaknesses. And so when we do this, we are asking people to cast judgment on us in a very specific way, though right so it is indeed a call to judge one another now and we don't do that based on our personal preferences or our standards that we have set for ourselves I'm not going to judge you based on what I want from you I'm going to judge you based on what the Word of God says you should be doing and in the same way you should do that for me right if you come at me and say Chris I just don't like the way you talk well okay is it ungodly no I just don't like your draw okay you know this is this is not something that I can handle but if in that draw I'm speaking ungodly things that you can address with me and you point it back to the Word of God and you show me hey you're doing this this is not how it's supposed to be and I think you should repent and if I can see that clearly that's my desire Like I've told people a million times I don't have to be right. I want to be right. I want to be right with God. I want to move towards Him in every single day of my life. We use the Word of God so that we can teach, we can rebuke, and we can correct people when they're straying away from God's nature and character, and it's an act of love. It's an act of love to do this for someone. It is a loving thing to stop To step in front of someone and stop them when you see them pulling away from the Lord. There's a quote that says, Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. I have no idea who said it. I like it though. It will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. And so it is an unloving thing for us not to do this for one another to not judge is the is a lack of love so we have to love someone enough to step in front of them and confront them if someone is willing to do that for you that is an amazing gift that you should thank God for and you should thank that person for it's an amazing act of love and when this process is necessary Jesus has laid out the steps for us to handle this situation in Matthew 18 15 to 17 and we also get a little bit of help from the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 1 and 2 So beginning with Galatians 6, 1 and 2, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So if we see someone going down a sinful path or acting out in a sinful way, first things that, the first thing that we need to do is to prepare our own heart to approach that person. First of all, as we saw in Matthew chapter 7, we need to see if we're guilty of the same sin. Right. If we are guilty of the same sin, we need to take the log out of our own eyes so that we can take the splinter out of the eye of the brother and sister in Christ who we have noticed this sin in. And one of the things that I have noticed is that we have a tendency to be able to point out the sins in other people that we also struggle with. We just don't necessarily call it sin in our life, but we notice the... The characteristics of that sin and so it's easy to see that in someone else. Second, we need to guard ourselves against the temptation to sin. Now, as I mentioned before, sin is deceitful. We need to be careful that we don't find ourselves sliding into the very same sin that we have addressed in someone else or finding ourselves going into another sin. Right, we can begin to elevate ourselves when we see, hey, there's a sin that I don't struggle with. Let me go confront that person and then we become proud that we don't struggle with that same sin. Or maybe we did struggle with it once before and now we don't and so we become proud that we don't struggle with that sin anymore. And pride is a sin and we need to be, re- be repentant of that. So we have to make sure that we are guarding ourselves from falling into similar sin. Third, we need to prepare our hearts to come with gentleness if the situation will allow it. That's what the Apostle, Apostle Paul said in Galatians 6. We are all prone to sin. right? We all struggle with it in one way or another, and if we approach these difficult conversations with that in mind, we will find that the conversations will go much better and we'll find, we'll find that they're, they're much more fruitful in the end. Right, this is like... The gospel is what one sinner telling another sinner, sinner where to find bread or one homeless guy telling another homeless guy where to find bread, some, something like that. Like, we understand that we're broken people. We understand that there is nothing good in us and all that we can lean into that is good about us is Christ. And so we approach people with that humble mindset. Right? If not, but for the grace of God, go I. We need to cling to that in our mind as we go. Now, sometimes gentleness is not on the table. right? If, if we find out that there is a man in the church that's abusing his wife and children, I'm not going into that with sweet and gentle tone. Like, I'm, I'm coming into that with ferocity right that's going to be addressed quickly it's going to be addressed sternly to protect those who are dealing with the abuse and that guy's going to jail if I can make it happen so sometimes we don't approach it with gentleness and and caution but that should be rare and it should always be based on the situation at hand so once the heart preparation has been made we begin to get into the process that Jesus lays out in Matthew 18 in Matthew eighteen fifteen to 17, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. And so we see a process here. This process begins one-on-one. So if someone has wronged you, if you see someone sinning, don't put it on blast to the entire church. Right? Gossip is just as sinful as any other sin. So if you've got a one-on-one issue with someone, approach them and address that issue with them. And Jesus says, you may just win over your brother. It may not need to go any farther than that. They may not have even realized that they have sinned against you. And so once you point that out, if they have the Holy Spirit residing in them, if they have a desire to bring honor and glory to Christ, then they'll see the truth of that and they will repent. And Jesus says, if you've done that, then you have won your brother. If... They don't see the truth of that if they refuse to repent or believe the truth of it he says go grab a couple of other people two or three other people and approach the person again again we're trying to keep the circle small here right because if you want to make sure someone doesn't repent put them on blast in front of everybody right? because then their frustration with you and the church could potentially harden their heart even more so we're doing this progressively right you prepare your heart you go into it prepared to do this the right way and you present it to two or three people so that they can hear what you're accusing them of and so that they can hear the rebuttal and then press on them to repent and if again they will not repent right then this should be be then presented to the church right if the first and the second step hasn't worked then you present it to the church that's when the entire church goes to that person and says, please repent. Please don't go down this path. This path leads to loneliness and despair and trouble, and it's not something that you actually want in your life. Please repent. Right again, this is not people whipping out their Bible and smacking people over the head. This is longing for repentance. Please, please turn. It says, if... The person will not listen to the church. They've made up their mind. They're going to go their own way. If that's the case, then those people are to be removed from membership of the church and they're supposed to be treated as though they are a Gentile or a tax collector, which means a non-believer. A Christian should want to repent. A Christian should desire to honor God with their life. A Christian should have the Holy Spirit living within them that should stir something in them when this confrontation happens. And we're not talking, like, this isn't an afternoon, all right? It's not like somebody cuts you off coming into the parking lot here, and so you go and talk to them, and they're like, you know what, I don't care. And then you go grab two other people and say, hey, you know, walk out here to the parking lot with me, and let's talk to this guy real quick. And they say, I don't care. And then... We come in here and say, hey, this guy cut me off in the parking lot. So we're like, hey, do you repent? And he says, no, like, get out of here then. You know, like, we're not talking about, this is not a day's worth of work. This is longing for them to change. This is giving them the opportunity to change. Right? For the Holy Spirit to convict. Right? if the Holy Spirit's there, it will do the work that, that we need it to do. Right? That he will do. But if the person will not repent, if they continue down this simple path, it's imperative that we remove them from fellowship. And then some say, but that's so judgmental. Well, yeah, it is. It is judgmental. Right. But it's better for us to judge them in this life than for God to judge them in the next. There is a judgment coming. We will all face that judgment. And it is better for us to say, bro, I don't see you walking with the Lord. You need to get your head right. You need to get your heart right. And until you do, you're no longer a member of this church. And that is going to hurt some feelings. I get that. That is going to strain some relationships. I get that. But it's better that we do that now than for that person to go to the great white throne judgment, face God, and God say, depart from me. I never knew you. How is it loving someone to allow them to continue to go down a path that is leading to condemnation by a holy and righteous God? How can you just casually let someone do that and say that you love them? There's no love in that at all. That's cowardice. That's us being more concerned about our own safety, our own selves, our own relationship with that person than that person's soul. If we find people who are going down this path and they will not repent, then it is imperative that we remove them from fellowship. And we see reasons for that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 8. So let's take a look at that real quick. Paul here is addressing an issue uh, with the church in Corinth. And he says it is actually reported That there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So he's pointing out, hey guys, here's something going on in this church that not even the pagans are willing to do. And this guy is sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul says, and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove your con- uh, from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch? Clean out the old leaven so that you may not be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says, take this person who is rampantly sinning And you guys are cheering him on because, you know, you think as sin is greater, grace abounds even more. So the church is actually cheering this this person on. Paul says it's good to remove this person for three reasons. First reason is that it removes any false assumptions. Right. No longer can you think that you're a believer when the church has come against you and said you're not living like it and you're out. That's what church membership is, right? That's what what communion is all about. And when you join this church, we're looking at your life, we're listening to your testimony and we are saying, yes, we believe that you have put your faith in Jesus and we will continue in fellowship with you. We will continue breaking bread and drinking the wine of communion with you as long as we see that you are still walking in faithfulness with Christ. But when we then see people who are straying away from that and unrepentantly straying away from that, there comes a point. We, we can no longer sign off on their salvation. Right, so that's, that's all we're doing. We're not saying that that person who has been removed from m- membership, they can come back. They can come here the next week if they want to. If they held any kind of position of authority, they're removed from that, Obviously. And so they're going to act like some person that just came in off the street. You know, we're going to, we don't know their heart. We're just going to pray that they'll come to faith. And so it's not like we're kicking them out completely, but we are no longer saying, I look at your life and I see Jesus. And so we're trying to remove that false assumption from them. The second thing that it does is it, it provides no protection from the church. Paul says, hand that one over to Satan with the hope that this will change their heart and bring them back to Christ. There is a certain aspect of spiritual protection that the church provides. And you've got, you, you no longer have people walking in the same type of fellowship. Our, our relationship is different when this happens. And as we approach people, we are now approaching them as someone that needs to hear the gospel, not as someone who is walking in the gospel. And so the protection has been removed in the hopes that the body will be ravaged, but the spirit will be saved. And lastly, the third thing, we must protect the church. He says, Paul says here, that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. All it takes is start turning a blind eye to certain aspects of sin and then we will see more sin begin to show up and more sin begin to show up and it just will snowball from there. And then at that point, if we have rampant sin going all throughout the church, nobody's calling it out, no one cares, then there comes a point when we are no longer a church. We're just a, a group of people that have nothing better to do on a Sunday morning than to come in and hang out together. Here's what will happen, though. Stuff like that does go down. Certain churches do allow it. They still call it worship, but there is no power for the kingdom of God found in it at all. We saw that in the book of Revelation. Remember when we did the seven churches in Revelation? We saw all these churches that had, they started off well and they, they faded away. There were only two churches that didn't get condemned by Christ for how they had moved away from the gospel. It says there that God, if they don't repent, if they don't change, if they don't go back to what they were supposed to do, says God will remove their light from the candle stand. Right? We might still gather in this situation, but there is no gospel being presented. There is no kingdom work being done. That's, that's how we are to address this within the church. Now, what happens, though, if someone sins against you outside of the church? A professing non-believer sins against you? What are we supposed to do with those who are not a part of the church? How do we handle someone who has sinned against us or is just sinning outside of the church? Well, we should approach them as well because we want to see the we want the best for them, right? We want them to have an interaction with Christ. We want them to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. We want to see them saved and become a productive member of the church. but. We can't exactly approach them with church discipline if they tell us to buzz off, can we? Right? What do you do if you present, hey, this is sinful activity, and they say, so what? What does that mean? Right. This is situational, obviously, right? Every situation will be a little bit different. So we can't, we can't approach it the same way every time. But we also can't approach it by saying, hey, you're sinning against God. Like, which God? What do, you, what do you mean? What does that mean? don't care about that all right so first off pray about it right get your heart ready same same process here pray that the holy spirit will be working in their heart to see see change present the situation to the person who is sinning in some way share the gospel if you can it's a great opportunity right when they say which god you say the only god and you talk to them about the sinful nature of humanity and how God wants a relationship with them and he provided an opportunity for that through Christ. If you can get that out, go for it. Perfect opportunity. But you present your case and then you have to leave the rest up to God. You can't make them do anything. Right, Paul talks to this in some degree at the tail end of 1 Corinthians 5 in verses 9 to 13. He says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, otherwise you would have to leave the world. So he's not talking about people outside the church when he's saying this. He says, but actually I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy and idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. So when we have, if we have somebody who we are addressing church discipline with within the church, like we're not supposed to have the same relationship that we had before. Verse 12, Paul says, For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Now, don't, you, don't you judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. So Paul's primary concern here is those who are within the church. Right? Right? Know that this is being handled one way or another, whether you get what you're looking for out of that conversation with the non-believer or not. It's not being overlooked. God is still taking this stuff into account. There will be accountability at some point, even if it's not within this life. But we cannot begin to expect someone who is a non-believer to act like a believer. Obviously, we've got certain moral codes that the entire world has recognized. You know, we can't just go over and kill somebody. We can't go steal their stuff. So, like, obviously, those are different issues. But when we're talking about sins of sexuality, when we're talking about uh, immoral thoughts, if we're talking about, you know, the, the sin of anger, what do you mean the sin of anger? Like, Nobody outside of the Christian faith understands that to be sinful, Right? You're, you're selfish, you're pursuing your own thing. Doesn't everybody, they will say? We just cannot hold them to the same standard that we would hold somebody within the church. And then what happens when they look at you and they say, you're being judgmental and only God can judge me. I've, I've heard it. People have said that to me. And to, to those people, I want to say, again, it is my judgment of you is so much better than the judgment that God is going to bring to you. You should want my judgment more than you want the judgment of God. And essentially they're just saying that you have no no power here. So they're kicking the can down the road. But Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, is a scary verse. It says, For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there were, no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on a testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31 says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The only person that could possibly say only God can judge me is someone who has a massive misunderstanding of who God is and what God is capable of. But as believers in Christ, we should know that. We should again be willing to love this person enough to step into their life, to step into their mess, to step into whatever it is that we need to, to at least present the truth to them. They may tell us to buzz off, and if that's the case, then so be it. We've done our duty. But we should love them enough to at least try. We should love them enough to try to push back the darkness in their life. To hope that the Holy Spirit and pray that the Holy Spirit will open their eyes to the truth. That's what we have to do. Are we called to judge people? Yes. Yes, we are. There's some caveats to that, obviously. But if we love people well, we are called to judge parts of their life. So a couple of points of application that I want to provide. Number one, be willing to be corrected. Right, if somebody sees you straying because we can't see it ourselves, then be willing to hear that from people. You know, if someone presents something to you and 98% of it isn't true and 2% of it is true, then own that 2% and change that 2%. We don't have to live our lives based on every single whim that someone else brings to us, but if we can look at it objectively and say, you know what, that tone was bad you know what? I am feeling a little jealous. Yes, I did steal that. I probably I shouldn't have, right? E- even if half of it's not right, take the half that is and change your life accordingly. Number two, be willing to correct. All right? It's often easier to be the one corrected, but it's really, really hard to be the one that is offering the correction because then you've made yourself vulnerable. Maybe this person won't like me anymore. Maybe they'll tell everybody that I'm a prude. Maybe they'll be antagonistic toward me for the rest of our relationship. Maybe this could ruin everything. But that's living out of fear and we cannot live out of fear. That's living out of fear and not love. We must be willing to love. And lastly, we need to be willing to engage with the lost people that we have been put around sovereignly by God because we are their shining light in the darkness. All right, so as you go from this place today, you're going to run into several people who don't know Jesus, who don't have a church home, who don't know what it means to live a righteous and holy life. And it is up to us to present that to them. To love them enough to show them that you're going down a path that leads to destruction, we need you to turn. Right? Because we love you. We don't want to see this happen to you. And that might come across as judgmental. I once shared my faith with a coworker, and I talked to her about Jesus. I talked to her about sin. I talked to her about judgment. And so she looked at me in the face and she said, You're telling me that you think I'm going to hell. Well, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you. She's like, doesn't that seem rather judgmental of you? I'm like, was like girl, that, I'm not the one sending you there. I'm just the one delivering the mail. We didn't have the same relationship after that, right? That's a little tense. This was actually in a game stop when I was in seminary and, you know, we, we, we had some cold shoulders after that, after, after that interaction, but I love that girl well enough to share it with her to risk rejection to risk an awkward workspace because I want to see her come to faith in Jesus and I pray that you want that as well let's pray together Father help us help us to live in the reality of the word help us to see that you have called us to be judgmental not in a way that elevates us above someone else but in a way that shows that we know your word and we love people and we want to see them come to faith and we want to see people continue to walk in faith. Lord, give us courage to speak the truth. Give us the love that we need to to walk into the mess of people's lives and to see what's going on there and to push that back with the power of the gospel. Lord, help us to be a church that is known our willingness to risk it all so that we can save some lives so we can save some souls well, we can't do that on our own we can only do that by presenting it and the Holy Spirit has to work through, through their hearts and to open their eyes to bring them to the reality of their sin and your holiness and Lord, I pray that as we present this as we leave this place today that many people would hear it that we would be faithful with the message and that you would change hearts and that we would be able to glory in the kingdom expansion. I ask all of this in your son's precious holy name. Amen.